BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Pulse of St. Louis. Welcome to the Pulse of St. Louis. I'm Shirley Washington. You know, several children ranging from 2 to 16 years of age have been shot to death in the Gateway City. And most of the cases have not been solved. Joining me now, St. Louis Police Chief John Hayden. Chief, thank you so much for being here. Let's start the conversation by talking numbers. How many children have been killed in St. Louis? Okay, so what we've actually done is breaking, breaking them down in a couple different categories. So uh, 10 and under, there have been four 10 and under. There have been four that are 15 or 16, and then there's one that's been 17. Um, those are homicide uh, uh, deaths, shooting deaths that have been ruled homicides. And then how many of those cases have been solved? It's, I believe it's only one. I know that that's been publicized. Um, um, we're still, Xavier Usanga? That's, that's correct. That's, that's, that's the one that's been solved. Um, uh, but all of them are very active investigations. So, Chief, just give me a sense of how does one on the police force go about investigating these crimes and then solving them? Because Xavier Usanga's death was solved really quickly, that case. But then there are so many others that have not been solved. Surely. So naturally, um, you know, there's a lot of scene investigation immediately, you know, a lot of collection of evidence, a lot of forensic things that will be used later. And of course, uh, then the web of persons that are in and around uh, the incident. And so um, the difference, uh, what I would say the game changer in the Usanga incident was the fact that neighbors, uh, the community was very active in that investigation. Uh, and oftentimes we run into a lot of, um, um, I'm not going to refer to it as interference, but certainly we get a lot of inconsistent information. Uh, certainly every, uh, what I've said is that every adult or teen that has been in and around some of the other ones have not been 100% forthcoming. And so the challenges are, are within uh, some of those statements that really aren't very helpful in solving the murder. So you're saying in Xavier's case, members of the community came forward with information? Absolutely. In, in, in Xavier's case, the community responded. Uh, they, people were very helpful in determining times and, 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 and activities and people that had been in and around the neighborhood. And so we found that um, that, that incident in particular, I wish were the model because we were able to solve that because we got cooperation from the community. And that's critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. What the, what about the big, I would say the biggest challenge to solving our homicides is the lack of, of witness participation. Um, you know, there's a way to do, to share information with the, with the police anonymously. That's through Crime Stoppers. But again, uh, people are oftentimes reluctant to share information. And so, uh, again, that kind of absolutely slows down the investigative process. But how do you respond to people? Because some say they want to come forward, but they are afraid for their own safety. So what do you tell those people? Because that really is valid. You know, they are concerned about their safety, but like you just mentioned, you can leave anonymous tips through Crime Stoppers, but what else does police do to protect people when they want to come forward? Sure, so the, so the department and the circuit attorney's office can work together to, to, after that, you know, to maintain that anonymity they can work together to, to really make sure that the person is kept safe. 
between uh, the time that the incident occurs and the time of the trial. So there are, there are extra steps. I know that uh, you talk about witness protection programs. I mean, certainly a modified version of a witness protection program exists between the department and the circuit attorney's office that we could assist in that process. So we were talking about the number of children who have been killed so far this year in St. Louis. How does that number compare to last year, this time? So this time last year, there were, there were, there were three uh, children that were under 16 uh, the whole of last year. However, in 2017, that number was 11. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're more aligned with, with, with 2011 than we are with, um, I'm sorry, we're more aligned with 2017 than we are with 2018 with respect to uh, persons under 16 and under that have been killed. How do you react and how do you respond to this as the chief of police? Well, hey, I, I've, I've uh, several of those things I've, I've gone to personally. And so, hey, I, I'm, 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 I'm going there, I, make a, I try to make a public appeal to try to get folks involved. Um, but again, um, uh, hey, the, the, the real difference, uh, like I said, I wish we could solve them all, but the real difference this time in, in the most recent one is the fact that the community came forward. In other words, the difference is, is that uh, oftentimes, as you are, you've already mentioned, oftentimes people say, what will happen to me if I cooperate with police? I think in, in, in the Usanga incident, the community said, what will happen to Xavier and kids, little kids like him if we don't say something? So we, I was very encouraged by that. I know that I know um, Alderman uh, Bosley came out. I mean, he was very, very strong in, in soliciting community support for trying to get to, get to the bottom of this. And so uh, I, I really, I really am, am applauding the Hyde Park neighborhood in this instance because that is the game changer, the, 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 the ability to reach out to community members, the ability for them to help us and supply information that's valuable, I, uh, I thought was uh, very laudable and I'm thankful for what they did and I think, but unfortunately you have the other ones that are unsolved and again, they're all very active and I think that uh, certainly the community could rep respond similarly in those instances. What do you say to the family members in those cases that have not been solved? Because I know they wait every day hoping to get information about an arrest in their respective cases. Sure. So what I say to the, the family members is unfortunately we haven't been able to solve the ones that involve your children. I, but at the same time, we've talked to on those incidents, we've talked to a bunch of people, went through a lot of evidence. And again, um, what I'm telling you is that we have not gotten 100% cooperation out of every person uh, in and around those, uh, those children when those incidents occur. We just haven't gotten the cooperation that we did in the Usanga incident. So how, does, how do detectives investigate cases like this? Because you hear sometimes parents who have been waiting a long time for information, they'll say, oh, the police aren't doing anything. Oh, my case is a cold case. What do they do? I mean, explain so that the public have a sense of understanding about this process. Sure, so, so what's, what's often, I think one thing that we're missing is that oftentimes a lot of homicides, you know, not only, not only the ones involving the youth, but homicides in general, there are oftentimes a, a lot of people that are in and around these scenes. I mean, when, I, when we say we don't have anything new, it's because um, people that, that were in and around the scene just haven't provided anything new. And so naturally, um, there's, that, there, there's forensic evidence, there's fingerprints, there's shell casings, there's all types of things that we can investigate that, 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 that only take you so far. But, but what you really would like is for, you know, naturally we use surveillance in, in some instances we have some camera footage, but ultimately we need the community in order to, to, to solve not only, not only homicides, but violent crime in general. We need, uh, we're, we're heavily dependent upon information that we would get from people that saw what happened, 
people can give us some context uh, for, those, for those things. And so, unfortunately, when, 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 when a lot of times when families get frustrated with us, they're saying, what, what new information do we have? And because people haven't come forward with anything new, it may be that the, all the scientific work has been done, but we don't have any new information from people that were standing in and around the incident. So when we talk about preventing crime, what is your department doing? What are you doing to prevent these kinds of crimes in our communities? Sure. So what I, what I, what I have been uh, sharing with everyone since I've been chief is that we, especially and when we talk about homicides and our gun-related incidents, so certainly at, at least 50% of that is drug-related. And I mean, how do we know that? There are witnesses that are telling us that's a drug deal. Uh, we, we, we may have other information coming in that points to that being a drug-related incident. But at, at least 50% is drug-related. Another 35% is, is personal disputes. And so 15% uh, is domestic. But I mean, if you talk about our ability to prevent drug-related uh, crimes, the first thing we do is we, we focus our attention on open-air drug markets. Pretty much, um, uh, and I'm talking about on, on your basic patrol officer, pretty much if you, got, if you have a location that's heavily involved with, with open-air drug markets, uh, that, uh, the, 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 the seller has his arm, the, the, the buyer's arm, there's an argument or what have you. There's, there's a lot of gun violence associated with drug, drug deals. And so that's why we focus our patrol efforts on that. But we also have a drug enforcement and investigation unit. So we're, we're trying to intercept drugs from coming into the city. We, we, we make controlled deliveries. We make controlled buys. We're really trying to affect the drug flow into the city. And then we, we participate in at least two federal um, uh, uh, task force. We, we're, we participate. We're, we're functioning with the DEA. We also f uh, function with uh, the other combined federal agencies on an um, organized crime drug enforcement effort. And so we have task force officers involved with drug enforcement. We have a drug enforcement unit. We have our officers focusing on drug activity. And so we, we know that a lot of the gun violence is associated with drugs. So that's why, that's why so much of our attention is focused focus on drug activity. And so, of course, people are saying, what's being done to protect the children? These are innocent children. In some of these cases, these kids were just playing in their front yards or backyards, and they're shot to death. Sure. And, and, and what I would tell you, and in particularly, the 10 and under. So the 10 and under, I, I mentioned in earlier, the category. So the 10 and under absolutely do not fit in any of those categories I just mentioned because they, weren't, they, they didn't have a personal dispute with anybody. Some of the 16-year-olds, the 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds, the 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds don't fit into that category either. Well, the, I, I would tell you that the 15 and 16-year-olds, I'll give you a perfect example. So there, there was a 15-year-old that, that was killed in a homicide uh, recently, and that 15-year-old had, a, had a, a, a drugs package for sale, a pistol with extended magazine, and $5,000 on the person. And so that's not the kind of information that we run and, and, and start talking about right away. But I'm telling you, every 15, so, so I'm saying clearly, the 10 and under weren't doing a thing. Some of the 15, 16-year-olds were doing things that I would consider risky. And then what do we do to stop that? Well, hey, it, always, there's always programs that, that, that try to get kids out of that. Some of it is responsibility. I mean, hey, if, you're, if your kid is out in the middle of the night, 15, 16 years old at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, that should be, that should be a parental concern. If, they, if, if somebody would say that, uh, and, and, and I would say this, so when I say, when I talked about the drug sales, for example, hey, a lot of people are supplementing their income with drug sales. And so uh, uh, I think the programs like um, that uh, uh, Save Our Sons, for example, they, they try to get people out of those lifestyles, those dangerous lifestyles. They try to get people employed, gainfully employed, so they don't do drug activity, so they don't put themselves and their families at risk. 
Uh, I'll give you another one. Hey, Better Family Life has a program that we actually have, a, that work along with our gang enforcement officers. We actually will extract, if, if, a, if a parent lets us know that there is a kid that's been involved in some gun activity, uh, maybe a, a house has been shot up or something like that, we can get to the bottom of that. We've actually relocated, relocated people to cut down on that violence. And so there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be done uh, non-enforcement. I mean, so I, I think, I, think uh, I would say that we're doing everything we can from an enforcement standpoint. Our, our relationship with Better Family Life, our relationship with Save Our Sons, are ways we're trying to get people out of those uh, scenarios. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a safe drug deal. I know a lot of people uh, may be thinking that I can go buy some drugs. So many of our cases involve people get there, they want to buy drugs. The, the seller now is saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm only collecting money today, and there's a shooting involved with it. So I'm, I'm just telling you what's going on at those scenes. A lot of drug activity and a lot of personal disputes. I can think about the, uh, and this is not necessarily involving children, but hey, when we talk about people that can't drive down an alley together and, and one of them won't move out of the way for the other one to get by and then somebody ends up getting killed, that's a personal dispute. I mean, you know, why did that have to end in gun violence? In fact, why does, why does so much of our interaction oftentimes have to be gun violence because people are angry with each other. Are you hopeful that we're going to see a reverse in this trend because it seems to be escalating? I'm absolutely hopeful and, I, and it is escalating. So we're, we're nine homicides above what we were this time last year. We're actually four below what we were this time in 2017. I, I would love to be able to say that there was some game changer that the police department is going to introduce that gets St. Louis out of that three-year trend, if you will. We have, we have, we have been battling for, uh, 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 for the, inf the infamous title of one of the most violent cities. But I mean, it takes more than the police department to change the narrative of our city and, and, and be a part of public safety. All right, St. Louis Police Chief John Hayden, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. And when we come back, we're going to talk with a federal judge. We'll tell you what he's doing to help convicted felons rebuild their lives after they serve their sentences. Stay with us. We are back in a moment. To hear more, listen to the podcast. Just search for The Pulse of St. Louis. Welcome back to The Pulse of St. Louis. You know, several nonprofit agencies in the Gateway City area offer programs designed to prevent convicted felons from returning to prison after they've served their time. Well, a federal district judge is doing the same thing in a unique way. Joining me now, E. Richard Weber, senior U.S. District Judge of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri. Your Honor, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. Tell me about what you do to help convicted felons rebuild their lives. When an individual finishes a prison sentence in the federal system, uh, they go into a halfway house, uh, which is part of the Bureau of Prisons. A probation officer is assigned to them at the time they go into the halfway house. And it's at that time that I ask the probation officer to bring them to the courthouse so I can sit with them. Uh, we sit at a corner table actually closer than you or I are. Really? Yes. And I tell them, uh, you know, nothing bad's going to happen to you today. Uh, this is my opportunity to try to convince you that I care about you personally. I do not want to send you back to prison for violating supervised release. Uh, the probation officer is the only other person present. And I turn to the officer and, uh, and explain how, how many programs are available for drug treatment, mental health treatment, job readiness treatment, and that um, education, we have uh, 
at the last count, 33 people in college uh, that have uh, uh, been to prison. And so there are all kinds of ways for a person to improve their lives. And uh, the thing that has been most encouraging to me when after we talk and stand up, uh, initially you can just see them melt down when they think that they're not in harm's way by the conversation. And they say things like, crazy things, like you're the only one that ever cared about me and I'm not gonna disappoint you. I'm gonna make you proud of me. And they do, it's, it's incredible how that motivates them to uh, stay out of trouble, get a job, which is the most important thing of all. If, if, uh, if they have employment, the chances are so much better that they're gonna be successful and not be back involvement in the criminal justice system. And you talked about that education component because there are a lot of education programs in the prison system for men yes. and women who are yes. incarcerated, whether they get their GED or if they get advanced yes. courses for a college degree. Yes. And you tell them about that, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, they come out and, and the criminal justice system is changing so rapidly. Uh, a few years ago, those programs did not exist in the Bureau of Prisons. And uh, particularly with, uh, we have so many drug uh, convictions, there's a program called uh, the Residential Drug Abuse Program, and it actually talks and helps them. Uh, it's a 500-hour program, and it teaches them to change their way of thinking uh, and to, uh, so that they can use the skills they have and the resources that are given to them uh, both in the Bureau of Prisons and after they uh, return to society to have the best chance of success in really making changes. Uh, so many of them uh, that I talk to, uh, one of the first things they do is they get reunited with their children. And I have a sentencing sheet that I have there at this interview that I prepared at the time of their sentencing. And I say things like, well, you know, how is, uh, Amy, Joe, doing, and and uh, so it, it it they understand that uh, I have a, a personal interest in them, and you connect and, with them on that personal level. Absolutely, and and I say, you know, I, I I know that you were suffering from some anxiety, and did were you able to get some help with that? And do you understand that we have resources here uh, that will be helpful to you? So once they understand that. Everyone is not against them. Once they understand that someone uh, that has authority over them in their lives cares about them, uh, personally, it, 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 it's different because what I find is in every case, almost every case, the only time they have had an opportunity to talk to someone in authority, the person of authority, told them, uh, you know, they were stupid, they're never going to amount to anything, and, and that's not the right approach. What makes you do it, Your Honor? Uh, I, I grew up on a farm, uh, had the best parents in the world, had the best neighbors. That we, had a little, we had a train that ran through this little burg where I lived, and they would, they would have jumped in front of the train to save my life. And uh, when I came down here and I saw why I was sending people back to prison. And then 
I was frequently revoking their supervised release and sending them back again, nothing positive was happening. And I, I thought, surely there's some way to inject myself into this process on a personal level and try to make a difference. And uh, it really has been incredible. Uh, I have, you know, <laughs> the, the, the other part of it is you get an ongoing relationship with these individuals many times. This one young man is just on fire to uh, counsel people, other people in prison. And a lot of people come out of prison and they say, I want to get involved as a mentor. Well, some people aren't equipped to do it well. This young man is. He is, uh, uh, I wrote a letter for him and uh, he's uh, going to be interviewing so he can uh, go actually to Greenville and, and talk to prisoners and he will, he will make a difference. And, um, you know, we, we talked a little about a couple of the cases uh, uh, where uh, a young man did not want to come in and talk to me at all, uh, but um, he did. He found out uh, that he could get a good job as a truck driver, uh, was actually pulled over for not paying child support, but he now has his job back and everything is on track. Uh, another individual uh, is making $33 an hour in a concrete uh, business and uh, I went to an award ceremony where he and his mother and the a probation officer and I had our picture taken. And uh, he was getting a, what's called the Power Award at Mr. Cook's program over at Washington University. And we took the picture and several days later, uh, my law clerk said, Miss um, Williams called and wants to give you uh, a gift. And I said, well, who is she? And he said, well, I don't know. But she came into the office with her sister. And she came to the door and she said, may I give you a hug? And she said, thank you for giving my son back to me better than I ever thought he could be. And uh, the gift that she gave me was a photograph that had been taken that night at the, at the, at the power ward. So, you know, how can life be better when those kind of things come along. How does it make you feel to know, you know that they appreciate it, it's, it so it's much? It's the greatest, it's the best thing that I have ever done uh, as a judge because I know, I know, I'm not guessing, that I have made, I've turned some lives around on a permanent basis. There's a thing called the cycle of hopelessness and helplessness. And without hope, life is miserable and not worth living. And if a person is without hope, they're willing to kill and they're willing to die. And so that sparks so much violence. People have to have hope that the future is going to be better. And it can be better. And if, but they, a lot of people need encouragement that they've never had in their life. And um, it's, it's a small thing to do. These meetings take 15 minutes. 15 minutes. 15 minutes and you can turn a life around in 15 yes. minutes. And honestly, and it, it, it just happens all the time. It's not, uh, you know, I, I relate a couple of stories just because of the time frame, but I could go on and on and on. Uh, and uh, another uh, one of them, another one I haven't mentioned, was one of the first calls I had on Father's Day. <laughs> you know. That's incredible. Yeah, wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you consider yourself tough 
on crime, Your Honor? Uh, I'm writing a book that's called Get Tough on Crime. Tough is scratched out and smart is written in above. Uh, what is happening now, um, uh, it costs $32,800 to keep a person in prison, federal prison each year. As the prison population is getting older, there's all the medical care and all the other expenses associated with uh, life. It costs about $2,700 to keep a person on supervised release. And so the uh, Congress has decided we cannot afford the prison system. The prison system costs more than the entire federal, the budget for the entire federal judiciary. Wow. And so laws are now being passed. The First Step Act was passed back in December where individuals uh, with certain kinds of offenses can actually uh, apply to the court and we can have a hearing. And uh, many are now being released from prison uh, because uh, of the length of time they've served and the laws that have been changed since the times they were convicted. If the laws existed uh, when they were convicted as exists now, they would receive much lighter sentences. And so what makes sense is that there are a certain percentage, seven to 10% of the population that needs to be in prison forever. They're gonna hurt somebody. They're never gonna change. They're dangerous. But from um, the seven to 10 on down to uh, 75, you get much better results with lack of recidivism. And then when you get back from 50% back to 1%, it's much greater uh, chance that people will stay out of prison um, if they have uh, some instruction and services on how to uh, change their life. They, so many people that I see never had uh, anyone in the home that disciplined them and got them on the right track. They drop out of school in the 10th grade. Uh, most of them are smoking marijuana when they're 13 to 15 to on up. And so marijuana becomes their, uh, it becomes their socialization, uh, their medication, that's all they want to do. And so then they get into the street drugs and, and once they drop out of it, drop out of school, they're have dedicated themselves to basic entry-level jobs. And, and I want to talk about that when we come back. Got to take a break. Stay with us, Your Honor. Stay with us. We are back in a moment. We'll continue the conversation after the break. Welcome back to the Pulse of St. Louis. We are talking with E. Richard Weber, federal judge. Your Honor, you were saying something that was so profound it seems so simple, but it's so profound about how we can make a difference in the lives of people every day. What were you just telling me in the brain? Well, it's, it, it's a simple thing. Um, so many people are downcast uh, because they're having problems at home, uh, employment problems, all kinds of problems. And sometimes it's just as simple as good morning and, as, and opening a door for someone and holding it open for them. And, and saying, how's, how's your day going today? Uh, so many people never have that kind of uh, connection. connection. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's simple. It doesn't have to be profound. But what I found with uh, talking to individuals, 
and when you really see them change, they have so many individuals have never believed that they can do anything but have an entry-level job and just struggle and not be able to pay their bills and not be able to pay their child support and not be able to take care of their family. And they learn that's not true. They can have good jobs. They can get education. There's, they can really change, and they do. And when they do, they're surprised and they're extraordinarily happy. Uh, and that's awesome that you're there to encourage them and motivate them. So yeah. thank you so much. And thank you so much for being here. And thank you for joining us for the Pulse of St. Louis. Remember, if you missed any part of the show, download the Pulse of St. Louis podcast in the iTunes or Google Play stores. And remember, for News 24-7, download the free Fox 2 and News 11 apps. I'll see you next time.